Hi, and welcome to the podcast, Princeton Alumni Weekly's monthly podcast. I'm Carrie Compton, and today I'm here with sociologist Danielle Lindemann, class of 2002. Danielle is a sociology professor at Lehigh University who has just written a new book called Commuter Spouses, New Families in a Changing World, which unpacks the multiple factors that go into two spouses choosing to live apart to pursue their individual careers, a trend that is on the rise in the United States. Danielle's work focuses on gender, sexuality, and culture, especially as they relate to occupations. Danielle, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So let's start with a bit of your biography. You write yourself into the book, minimally, and for a few years you were also a commuter spouse. So tell us about that time and whether that was how you came to write on this topic. Sure. So this sort of happened because I was um, at Columbia, where I got my PhD, um, looking to see on the job market, which if you know anything about the academic job market, it's very difficult to find a job, um, especially if you're looking only in one geographic location, which Mm -hmm. accounts for a lot of these kind of commuter marriages. Um, And I happened to get offered a postdoctoral position in Nashville at Vanderbilt University. And at the time, my husband um, had just gotten partner at his law firm. We were living in Brooklyn. Um, And I found it very interesting when I talked to, say, my advisors or other people in academia. They just assumed that I would take the position and we would just live apart for those Mm -hmm. two years of that postdoc, right? And, you know, I'm a scholar who's very interested in what we call deviance, so non-normative behavior. And I thought at the time, this is kind of interesting, is this, we might think about living apart from one spouse as being deviant, as being not the norm, but it seemed like in academia that was the expectation that you would do that. Um, So that's what sort of first got me interested um, in the topic. So it is a bit auto-ethnographic. I do kind of write myself in there in a way. Um, But yeah, that's what really inspired me to, to do the research and write the book. So you get into in the book that there's sort of a lack of modern research on this topic. Talk about what kind of work had been done and and what you learned about what's happened since. So there has been some research on the topic in the communications field, Hmm. sort of like strategies, communication strategies that spouses use when they're living apart. Ah. So I don't want to sort of discount that. But in sociology, there really hadn't been very much written um, other than these two books from the 1980s, the early and the mid-1980s. And what was sort of, I guess we can get into my findings in a little bit, but one of the things that was really interesting to me reading those books and then doing this research is that, yes, a lot has changed, right? Just thinking about the technologies that the couples are able to use now, right? In those older books, they talked about writing letters to each other or having to pay for long distance phone calls, right? Here, it's just, you know, they really could be in touch continuously. As many of them said, they were in constant contact. So a lot has changed, um, but some things haven't changed since the time that those books were written. So that was really interesting, too. Yeah. So what were some of the more surprising findings of yours that right out of the gate shocked you? So I wouldn't say it necessarily shocked me, but it was surprising to me that the way that people talked about gender Um, aligned very strongly with the way people talked about gender in those 1980s books, right? This Mm -hmm. idea that we still have this idea that maybe the wife should subsume her career to the husband's 
women said women more often said they felt stigmatized for choosing to opt into these relationships. Women were much more likely to be the primary caretakers of young children um, in these relationships, which is sort of interesting, right? Because if you think about these relationships, you might just assume that they're completely gender egalitarian, right? Because these are couples who are choosing to live apart for both the husband's and the wife's job. They were all they were all um, heterosexual couples, I should say. I didn't mm-hmm. interview any same sex mm-hmm. couples. Um, so they're cho- they're making that choice, right? Which sort of goes against gender norms in some ways, mm-hmm. um, but at the same time, they're really solidifying gender norms in other ways. Um, for instance, the fact that the women were the primary caretakers of children in almost every case, mm. right? And oftentimes, those women felt like women felt like they were single mothers mm-hmm. or single parents, right? So we do have this societal expectation that women should do the majority of the caregiving, and here that was really concretized in these relationships mm-hmm. that we might otherwise think of as very egalitarian and they were egalitarian in some ways mm-hmm. right but in certain ways that I don't know if they were shocking but somewhat surprising um, something else that somewhat surprised me was the fact that um, these couples spoke a lot about how entwined they were in each other's lives mm-hmm. um, and a lot of that had to do with the availability of the technologies a lot of them sort of mentioned that they were in touch constantly or continuously um, I asked them, you know, in what ways do you rely on your partner? Many of them said for everything or in every way. Um, And that was somewhat surprising to me because sort of one of the sort of theoretical levers into this project when I first started it, um, I was thinking about this idea that we're moving toward more individualistic relationships. There's a lot of literature on that, how we sort of used to think of marriage as more of this sort of collective unit, and now we think about it more individualistically. Even the idea that we should love our partner Mm -hmm. is a very contemporary American, contemporary Western idea. Um, The idea that marriage should fulfill us personally, right? So we're moving in sort of this, this direction of individualism. And we might expect these couples to be extreme iterations of that, Mm. right? Because they are choosing to live apart to fulfill their own career goals. And most of them are not doing it because they need the money. They're not doing it because of financial necessity. They're doing it because their careers fulfill them. Yeah. Let's take a moment and talk about your sample. Um, Talk about your sample size, what kind of generalities you can give listeners about who you spoke to for this. Sure. So I interviewed 97 people um, who lived apart or had lived apart in the past, some or all of the time, um, and they had to live apart for their careers, for their dual professional careers. Um, And they had to have a separate residence for that purpose. Um, So I used that so I wouldn't have to make kind of ultimately arbitrary distinctions between who lives apart and who just travels a lot for work. I see. Um, And I wanted to focus on well-educated professional couples. Now, throughout history and today, couples live apart for all sorts of different reasons, right? Immigration, marital discord, incarceration, right? All sorts of reasons. I was specifically focused on these kind of professional couples because it is somewhat of a contemporary phenomenon, this idea that these sort of dual dual career, well-educated couples would live apart um, for the purpose of work. Um, And I focused on married couples because I was, again, interested in sort of the institution of marriage and how our thoughts about that have changed. Mm. Um, 
and again, I, I, I wanted to include same-sex couples, and I actually worked through my own network to try to include same-sex couples. But again, I included marriage as a criterion for inclusion, um, and they have not historically had access to that uh, civil benefit. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately, I wasn't able to interview any of those couples. I think that would be a fascinating follow-up study, though. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned that a lot of this was not financially driven, mm-hmm. that we're making these extreme sacrifices for profession, professional identity. I mean, it certainly says something about professional identity, mm-hmm. right? This idea that we're so embedded. I mean, it, it's almost ironic in a way that we as- ascend to these high levels of education, right? And we, we tend to think that high levels of education would improve our universe of choices as we see them. But actually, they shrunk, they shrank, they shrank the universe of choices as these respondents saw them, right? Because if you're trained in this highly specialized field, then you feel like you need a job in that highly specialized field, right? If you're a pr- professor of 18th century Russian teacups, then, right, <laughs> you need to apply to the two Russian teacup jobs, right? And yeah. then wherever they are, if it's Boise, you go to Boise, yes. right? And then if your husband or partner is also a professor of Russian teacups, right, then you're probably not going to be in the same place. Um, so we tend to think about education as something that sort of improves your improves your sense of choice or your universe of choices, but um, that that wasn't necessarily how these couples saw it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how common is the arrangement, especially as compared to the literature you found from the 1980s? You know, it's, it's everyone asks that question. It, it's hard to say. Um, it's hard to give an actual sort of measure of how many people are really doing this. Um, you can look at census data and look at how many people are living apart, um, but you that won't tell you why they're living apart. So they could be living apart for any reason, like marital discord, all the, all the other reasons I sure. mentioned. Um, there was there was a sociologist, Mart, not a sociologist, she's an economist, Marta Marie Close, who looked at census data, and she found that sort of highly educated couples were more like, significantly more likely than just college-educated couples to live apart, um, which I think she makes kind of the strong argument that this is because of these sort of um, – labor structures, right, and this sort of specialized training that we get that we we feel that we have to move geographically um, in order to have a job. So it, it's hard. Again, it's I know this is an unsatisfying answer for everyone. Yeah, it's yeah. hard to put a number on it. Um, and I know some people have and some people have tried. Um, but it's sort of everyone who studies this, I always say, agrees that it's on the rise, mm. right? Not just in the U.S., but also in, there's a lot of research on, in Britain, too. Um, that it's on the rise and people living apart from their spouses is on the rise, but we can't say definitively sort of give a number of how many Americans are living apart for this particular reason. I see. I see. So you said that it's becoming more socially acceptable. Um, Is it more acceptable for a man versus a woman or how is that nuanced? Right. I mean, I think it is becoming more socially acceptable. If, if you look at sort of the percentage of my respondents who said they felt stigmatized, it was lower than the percentage of, you know, respondents who felt stigmatized in earlier studies. Um, but certainly there was that gender component in there. And I'm not the only one who's found that. Um, these communications researchers have mm-hmm. also found that sort of women tend to perceive that there's more of a stigma against them for living apart. And you know, typically comes from, you know, family members saying, well, you know, why aren't you following your husband, right? Because there is this idea of the so-called trailing spouse um, Mm. who follows their partner to where his or her, but typically his, right, career is located. And that is a very gendered expectation, right? Trailing spouses are not always women, right? But they tend to be women more often. Mm -hmm. 
right? So sort of the stigma that respondents felt did tend to be gendered. Women tended to feel like more of a burden and more of a stigma in the fact that they were living apart. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So tell us about what your respondents had to say about living apart. What were some of the pros and cons? So it is interesting. Um So I do want to say, first of all, I talk a lot about the pros in the book. Um, and But right off the bat, I want to say that this wasn't the ideal lifestyle for any of them, right? right? This was something they felt. It wasn't because of financial necessity, but they felt that it was because of pr- professional necessity, right? They were not living apart because it was a lifestyle choice. They thought it suited them. There are couples who do that. Mm-hmm. They, this wasn't that, mm-hmm. that set of couples. Um, so, yeah, so they were living apart because of these these professional reasons. Um, and all of them who I interviewed, except for one person, were either back living with their spouse by the time I interviewed them hmm. or intended to do so in the future. Okay. Um, except for one who said that she wasn't sure. But <laughs> although her partner said that he did want to live together. So but Did any of the marriages <laughs> dissolve Sorry. during your study? So it, I didn't interview anyone who was currently divorced from their partner. Okay. Um, there was one couple, very interesting, who lived together, no, who lived apart. Then they lived back together again. Then they got divorced. And now they then they got remarried to each other and oh, are living yeah. happily apart. You're right about them, yeah. Right. And it seems like living apart might suit them better in some ways, although even they said, right, that they ultimately plan to live together again. Sure. Right. So I do want to say when I talk about the pluses and minuses, mm-hmm. this is not a utopian arrangement for any of them. But that said, there were some pluses to this relationship. So some people talked about how it actually improved their communication, paradoxically, hmm. because if you have to pick up a phone and call someone every night and talk about your day, right, you're kind of forced to talk to each other. Whereas if you're in the same space all the time, you're just, you know, sitting on the couch or watching TV, eating dinner or whatever, you don't, you're not necessarily forced to sort of have that communication. Right. Some people said it sort of gave their relationship spice or it was a return to the excitement of dating. Mm. Um, When they, you know, visit each other, they could explore that person's city, Mm -hmm. right? Um, I I mean, I certainly, like, enjoyed when my husband would come visit me in Nashville and we would go out and explore Nashville. Um, Now, we didn't have any kids at the time, which is a whole other, Right. right, element. Um, So there's that. And, you know, the women, though, were kind of uniformly – other than the women with kids, I should say, were kind of more uniformly positive about it, um, about the fact that it gave them space and then about the fact that it gave them time to themselves, which is something that's, again, very gendered. It's something that women don't necessarily always have. Mm. Um, there's a whole literature on sort of leisure time and the fact that men tend to have more le- – there's a leisure gap now. Men tend to have more free time. Mm. Women's leisure time is shorter, and it tends to be more often interrupted by the demands of unpaid work like childcare or domestic labor. Right? Right. Women still do more significantly around the house than men do. Um, so in a way, it was sort of kind of a, a hall pass from the demands of domestic femininity for some of these women. Right? So that so that leisure gap closed when you separated the couples almost. Well, I didn't look at the amount of time that sure. they spent, sure, right? So I didn't assess it. Yeah, yeah. It, it did feel that way. You know, uh-huh. that was sort of a narrative that came up. Oh, and I was, it actually surprised me too because again, you would expect these couples to be more gender egalitarian than the average because they're in these relationships, mm-hmm. right? Um, but the fact that even these couples were talking about the women 
women were talking about, oh, I don't have to pick up my husband's shoes anymore, right? Or it gives me me time. It gives mm-hmm. me space, right? Where the men weren't necessarily telling those. Some men were, mm-hmm. right? But in the aggregate, they weren't necessarily telling those same kind of narratives, I think, is significant. So what happens when children are involved? Right. So again, when children are involved, the women tend to be primary caregivers of the children. Um, so about over a third of the couples I interviewed I should say the people I interviewed had children under the age of 18 at the time they lived apart, about 37 percent, right? Um, In three of these cases, the children were living with the fathers. So, right, so overwhelmingly the children were living with the mothers. And as we talked about, these women felt that – many of these women felt that this really, you know – intensified their, you know, domestic demands. You know, that makes sense, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So again, we might think of these as gender egalitarian relationships, but it actually sort of crystallized these female gender role expectations in some of these couples because they were doing everything. It wasn't just that women were doing more with the kids, which statistically is true in the aggregate. They were doing everything with the kids, right? Um, Because the men weren't physically there. so so th- I thought that was a kind of an interesting find. It wasn't surprising to me, but that was something that the writers from the 1980s also talked about and was reflected here as well. So that really hasn't budged very much. Um, and I also thought it was interesting that in the, in the instances, the sort of outlier instances where the men were the caregivers of the children, the men knew it. They mm-hmm. knew that they were the outliers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of them talked about how he sort of got praised for it. And people said, you're doing this great thing, right? And his wife said, you know, I, I don't think I would get praised if, right? And, of course, I, I don't think any of the women that I talked to who were the primary caregivers were getting this. You're, you're doing a great thing. You're really doing something wonderful for the family here, right? right? So that was very gendered as well. Yeah. Time zones complicated things as well. For sure. Yeah. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's something that people often ask, like, you know, how did it vary based on how far people lived apart? Um, the people who lived closer together seemed to sort of – I didn't – I didn't measure happiness, but they did seem to be sort of more content, right? If you're seeing your partner, you know, two days out of every week, it's very different from if you're seeing your partner every few months and you live 12 hours apart and, you know, you can't even, you know, you really pick up the phone to call them because they're asleep, mm-hmm. right? That's a whole other sort of can of worms, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so talk about technology and what technologies they tended to use. This was... Your research was just a little bit before FaceTime, is that correct? So FaceTime was around, and one of the things that I thought, and Skype was around, obviously. One of the things that I thought was interesting is that they had access, it wasn't that they didn't have access to it, right? Because again, these are sort of people working in white collar jobs, right? They're sitting at desks, they can use this technology. Um, But they... Most of them said that the phone was their most important form of communication, even though they had access to FaceTime. Um, And sort of they talked about sort of the snafu, especially with Skype, they talked about it freezing and things like that, Mm -hmm. right, and the sort of snafus. But um, it's interesting because a lot of this work from the 1980s talks about sort of the lack of face-to-face communication and how, you know, how that really negatively impacted the relationships. But here they have the ability to communicate face-to-face, face-to-face, theoretically, um, but they're not really – I mean, they they used it, mm-hmm. right? They certainly used it, but the phone was more important. But mm-hmm. I think it would be interesting to see how those te- technologies progress, and as they become better, are they going to become more important to these couples? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you also talked about kind of the different buckets. 
people right. used text for kind of more casual hello, whatever, and email for more administrative tasks. Right. I thought that was really interesting too, right? The sort of the sort of constant communication they had via text. If they wanted to have a big emotional conversation, you know, call on the phone. Mm. If it's like, you know, this guy is coming to fix our electricity, like what are the things we need to deal with, right? Or right. I'm planning my daughter's wedding as one of them was. They were going back and forth about right. planning the daughter's wedding. They would email each other, right? So they would have those details, right? But I mean, that's one of the things that's different about this study is that we have access now to all of these different buckets. For better or worse, we have access to all these different buckets that didn't exist in these earlier studies. Yeah, yeah. So towards the end of your book, you have this quote that I really liked. You said that the emergence of commuter spouses reveals something about a broader incompatibility between the traditional notion of family and the changing structure and meaning of professional work. So riff on that for me. What what do you think that is? Right. I mean, so... I mean, it's hard to use well, the word traditional. I mean, tradition of sure. white, right? But I guess when people think of traditional, they might think of sort of the 1950s, right? Which was a weird time in our country's history. It wasn't really traditional. But I think that's the reference point people Absolutely. tend to use. Um, and so take academic jobs, for instance, right? They work fine if you have a man who's able to travel anywhere and he is, you know, a stay-at-home – and again, we're looking at heterosexual couples – has a stay-at-home sp- – wife who mm-hmm. will tra- will travel with him and she's portable, right? Mm-hmm. So that works, right? Until then the wife gets educated too and also has a wants a, has professional aspirations and then that doesn't really work so well anymore. Mm-hmm. Right? And more and more we're seeing that, right? As women are, you know, going into college in higher numbers and going into higher education beyond college in higher numbers, right? So now we see this highly educated workforce of professional women who now have their own ex- um, aspirations and they aren't just going to sort of be portable. Um, and there's a tension there, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Thank you very much for joining me today, Danielle. I really appreciate you making the trip out here. Thanks so much for having me. It's Absolutely. really fun. Great. Thanks so much for listening to this month's podcast. If you'd like to hear other episodes, please go to paw.princeton.edu or subscribe on Apple iTunes. Till next time.